the contemporary view of God uh, among evangelicals has little room, if any, for the wrath and the judgment of God. I think for many it's really actually more of an embarrassment, uh, something that is to be avoided at all costs, if possible, discussion of wrath or, or judgment from God, and, uh, you know, acknowledged, perhaps, if we're really pressed on the matter, uh, or perhaps we can acknowledge it in reference to the worst that humanity has to offer. Sure, God might be angry at, at some of the really worst, you know, really bad people, but generally, it seems to me uh, that this is something of an embarrassment, and there's not a lot of room to discuss it. And I think, on the one hand, you know, if we read our Bibles, we might scoff at that. Uh, but on the other hand, I think it's somewhat understandable why that's the case. Um, I'm sure, probably, everyone here at some point has felt that way a little bit. Uh, felt maybe a little uneasy about that subject, perhaps a little uneasy about discussing that with somebody or sharing that information with somebody. And the reality is, it is a heavy subject. It's a, it's a weighty topic that requires submitting many of our natural assumptions about human goodness and about the character of God, who He is, and about the reality of justice and what constitutes justice. We have to submit our natural, fallen, human understanding to what the Word of God says, and this is difficult by nature, uh, by sinful nature, that is, uh, and in our human pride, we tend to exalt man, and we tend to, uh, to, to bring God down. And this runs into serious conflict with the Bible's teaching about God's wrath and justice. Uh, if we elevate ourselves and we bring God down, uh, then we, when we read of God's judgment, Things just don't seem to add up. It just seems over the top. It seems way too much for us. But despite this difficulty, it's not as if the scriptures speak in muffled tones about this matter. Uh, and once again, as we continue through the book of Luke, Jesus speaks of judgment as we get kind of midway through the Olivet Discourse here in Luke chapter 21. So I invite you to turn there. And we're continuing to work through this chapter, and we're noticing that Jesus has been preparing his church, preparing his people in the first century and beyond the first century as well. And we see that again in verses 20 to 24, where, where we will be focusing the rest of our time. We see that Jesus is preparing his people specifically with regard to this matter of God's judgment. Now, if you'll recall from previous weeks, Jesus is answering the question in this this discourse in this sermon about when it is that the temple is going to be destroyed. So if you'll recall, uh, he has said that the uh, not one stone will be left upon another, beginning of the chapter, and then verses 8 to 19, uh, he is speaking there of that which will occur in the lead up to Jerusalem's destruction, the signs that will point to its coming doom. And then in verses 20 to 24, which we're going to look at today, he then actually discusses that destruction. And then in verse 25, he begins speaking about his return, the return of the Son of Man. And as we noted a couple of weeks ago, as we started into this chapter, uh, in both Matthew and in Mark, 
uh, in their versions of this, the two topics of Jerusalem's destruction and of Christ's return, they're, e they're even more intertwined than they are in Luke. So much so that as we read those accounts, it's sometimes difficult to tell whether he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that we know occurred in the year 70 AD, or is he talking about uh, a future time that is yet to be fulfilled when he returns. At times, these seem to be, it's difficult to tell. And we, and we noted the reason for this is because the destruction of Jerusalem, it serves as a type and as a foreshadow of the judgment that will come when the Son of Man returns. And in Luke, as Luke presents this to us, as he's telling this to, to us as, as his readers, there's a very clear separation that there are two different events being referred to here. There is the destruction of Jerusalem, a historical event that we know took place in the year 70, but also uh, that, that the Son of Man is, is a, a yet future event that is a separate and distinct uh, occurrence, and yet clearly in Luke they are still related matters. And so we've been looking at how Jesus' words, they not only prepared his followers for what would occur when Jerusalem would fall and what would the lead up to that, but he's also preparing his followers throughout history as history runs its course in the lead up to Christ's return. And so as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, as he's talking about these signs that lead up to Jerusalem's fall, these are signs that continue throughout church history and continue to prepare us, we're prepared for, and warn us and point to Christ's eventual return in judgment. And now, as we get into verses 19, or sorry, verses 20 to 24, we're looking specifically at the actual destruction of the city as Jesus uh, brings this to our attention and mentions this. So I'll invite you to read with me. We're going to back up and start again in verse 5, and then, uh, and then we will uh, read right through to verse 24. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But... When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. 
And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Again, as I mentioned, uh, this whole discourse right through to the end of the chapter is Jesus preparing his people, preparing his disciples, including us, for what is to come. And the idea of watchfulness and, and remaining steadfast is really the key takeaway from this whole chapter. Uh, it's explicitly said in, in verse 34 uh, to 36, but we've been seeing this already happening, that uh, you know, false Christs will come, do not go after them, right? Be watchful, be careful, uh, and, and to, be, to, to remain steadfast even as we're persecuted. By your endurance, you will gain your life. So watchfulness, preparation is what this is about. And so once again, Jesus, we see him preparing us, particularly, he's preparing his church in verses 20 to 24 to escape the judgment of God. Specifically, he's speaking of the judgment that would fall on Jerusalem. But again, as we think of this as a type, a type of the final judgment, I think the implication here is that we are to be warned about that day that is yet to come and likewise flee from it, to flee from the wrath of God. And so we're going to look at uh, Jesus again preparing his church to uh, to to. In- endure to the end and to avoid the judgment that is coming from God. And he does this in four ways we're going to look at. And the first is that the Lord has prepared his church by revealing the reality of God's judgment. So if you remember from last week when we were looking at persecution, I I said that it's um, a service. It's very helpful that Jesus, and in fact throughout the scriptures, it speaks very very plainly and very clearly that as Christians, as followers of Christ, we can expect opposition. We can expect some measure of persecution. That's helpful to know that. Uh, we're not surprised when it falls upon us, thinking we've been misled or something like that. No, Jesus, and, and throughout the scriptures we are told, it will come to us. So when it does, we can, we can be prepared for that. Well, similarly... It's a service to all who have ears to hear to know that God is the judge of all and that he will assuredly come in judgment. So look at verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Very plainly, judgment is coming, he's telling them. He's already assured them not one temple stone would remain on top of another. And now he's telling them that when they see armies approaching Jerusalem and getting ready to surround the city, that its desolation is near. Of course, desolation means destruction. It means devastation is coming. And, and throughout the book of Luke, we've seen that this is, Jesus has made this plain in, in a number of occasions. And not just Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist, he said that the axe was laid at the root of the tree. Right? Judgment is coming. That's what that means. Uh, Back in chapter 20 and verse 16, Jesus told the parable of the the servants in the vineyard, and he told them that the vineyard tenants would be destroyed and that the vineyard would then be given to others, right? Judgment is coming. 
And he says here there'd be armies that would surround Jerusalem. Um, so this desolation that's on its way, it's, it's coming by, uh, carried out by human armies, but they are really just tools in the hands of God. They are God's instruments for judgment against Jerusalem, against Israel. This is not just a coincidence of history. Um, God is behind this ultimately. Jesus says, when you hear of armies, he says, then know that its desolation is near. Know it. He, that, that's the imperative here. That's what he wants his hearers to, to take away here, to know, to be certain that its desolation will come. There's going to be no escape. There were times in history, in Israel's history, where armies pressed in, but God did deliver them. You think of when Assyria, when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came near to Jerusalem and Hezekiah withstood him. Sennacherib's taunting them. God's not going to deliver you. But God tells the, the, uh, the, the Jerusalem people and Hezekiah to stand their ground. He would, in fact, deliver them. And sure enough, he did. He has done it before. But this, Jesus is saying, will not be one of those times. When the armies press near, know that desolation is coming next. And this is precisely what happened in history. After four years of Jewish revolt against Roman rule, uh, in, in the month of April, in 70 AD, uh, the man who would eventually become Emperor Titus, he led Roman armies to Jerusalem, and he surrounded the city, and he laid siege to it. This was the fulfillment of Jesus' words. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies... It took place. It happened. It came to pass. They really did come and surround and lay siege to Jerusalem. This judgment really did fall. And, and after four brutal months of a siege, on September 8th, uh, the, the city had finally fallen to Roman rule. The temple had been destroyed. Much of it had been burned. Numbers are disputed, but thousands upon thousands, at least, were killed. Many thousands more were taken into exile. Whenever big events take place, even small events, but big events as well, uh, we have a tendency to try to interpret their meaning. Uh, what significance does this have? And, and in this occasion, Jesus tells us very plainly the significance of Jerusalem's fall, that this was, in fact, God's judgment upon them. Now, this was not the first time that God used foreign army as instrument of judgment against Israel. In fact, if you think back to the time of the judges onward, we see this regularly. In judges, there's this pattern where the people fall into sin and God sells them into the hands of their enemies. And then when they cry out to him, eventually he raises up a judge who then works deliverance in Israel and all is well for a time. And then they fall back into sin God sells them into the hands of their enemies. And this cycle continues throughout the book of Judges, throughout the book of First and Second Kings, really throughout their entirety of history. And it's, it's sadly so very predictable and almost exhausting when you read it. Uh, but this was a regular occurrence. Foreign armies as God's judgment against Israel. Isaiah 10 verse 5, we read it explicitly that God used Assyria in this way against Israel. The northern kingdom, after Israel had split into two kingdoms, he says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands, is my fury. Against the godless nation I send him, 
And against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Roughly 150 years later, God would do the same thing to the southern kingdom using uh, the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar as they sacked Jerusalem and took the people away into exile. Whatever God's means, the Bible is explicit, very clear, that God is the judge of mankind. Sometimes we look out on this world and it would appear as though there is no justice. It seems that way, certainly. But of course, while God does execute judgment during this lifetime, as he did with Jerusalem here, the Bible is also clear that God will bring all men and women into judgment at the end of all things. And so, while someone might seem to get away with an awful life of wickedness and live with seemingly everything and then die in a ripe old age and there seems to be no justice in that, the scriptures assure us that there is coming a day where God will measure out justice to those people. And if something like the sacking of Jerusalem is a terrifying thought of the destruction that occurred there, imagine justice that awaits us sinners when we stand before God and the books are opened and all of our thoughts and intentions of our hearts is laid bare before God. God, as supreme judge, this goes along with the fact that he is the creator of all and the fact that he's the sovereign ruler over all things. Uh, the fact that he would then be the judge, it's a necessary aspect of his holiness and of the presence of sin. Uh, he must be judge. He must, because he is holy. Uh, a good, righteous, just judge cannot stand idly by if there is wickedness. Now, it seems to us that he does, but what the scriptures tell us is that in time, all things will be made right, that perfect justice will prevail. He must be the judge because he is holy and he is good. And the reality is his, his role as judge is, is not only clear in Scripture, but it's celebrated throughout Scripture. It's a terrifying thought on the one hand, but it's also a good thing that God is the judge. Consider Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. And they say the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. He's appealing to and celebrating the God of vengeance, the judge of the earth, calling God to execute that justice, celebrating it. Psalm 89, 14 declares that righteousness and justice, that could be translated judgment, Righteousness and judgment are the foundations of your throne. God is praised because at the heart of his rule as God lies righteousness and justice, which implies judgment. 
These are not back burner issues. These are not optional attributes of God. They are foundational to his rule. For what it means for him to be God and to be the king. Notice also there in Psalm 89, 14, that judgment and justice, it's not according to sinful, fallen human understanding. It's not according to any sort of wickedness whatsoever. But justice, his judgment is tied to his righteousness. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his stone. His judgments are all done in righteousness. Because he's righteous, he is judge. Psalm 33, 5 tells us that he, God, loves righteousness and justice. Again, it could be judgment. He loves these things. Now this is not telling us he's got some sick pleasure in punishing evil people, but it is the reality that righteousness and justice are truly excellent things. They're truly good things. That judgment becomes necessary. Because righteousness and justice are, are good. And because the presence of sin. And I think we also must acknowledge that we, even in an earthly sense, we want judges who delight in justice and righteousness. Do we not? We would want an earth, even an earthly judge to really desire justice. So that he can make a just decision that somebody is innocent or somebody is guilty. And delight in in doing what is right and good in this. It's a good thing that God is the judge of all. And Hebrews 9.27 so clearly explains that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It's not just what we can get away with on this earth. We cannot escape God. Throughout the scriptures... God is declared to be the judge of all. Revelation makes that very clear as well. That at the end of all things, he will measure out justice. He will do what is right. And this is so crucial and important to know this, to understand this about God. In fact, I would say even it's essential that we understand this about God. That it's getting, at, as we read, the foundation of his throne and his rule. God's judgment on Jerusalem was a sure thing. He says, no, when you see those armies, know that its desolation is coming. And sure enough, it did. It came to pass. And this is a, 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 a sure sign to us that he will surely bring about final judgment on this earth. The wicked will not escape the all-seeing eyes of the Almighty. He who formed the eye does in fact see all things. And this aspect of God, that he is just and that he is the judge of all the earth, this is not surprising if we are reading our Bibles. It is everywhere, and, and, and we are told it clearly here. We are warned, we are prepared. If we are to escape, to escape God's judgment, we must obviously know that it is coming. And we're warned throughout the scriptures about this in no uncertain terms. And it leads us to the question of whether or not we are ready for this. If we are ready to face it. The Lord prepares us by speaking plainly about the reality of God's judgment. But secondly, the Lord prepares his church to escape judgment by revealing the reason 
for God's judgment. We've touched on this. But one might wonder if judgment is arbitrary. Uh, is God consistent in what he does? Is he acting on a whim? Does he have bad days? Jesus reminds us why judgment comes. He reminds us why judgment came upon Jerusalem. And this is instructive to us all. So in verse 21, he gives instructions for people to flee Jerusalem when these armies press in. And we will come back to that verse in a little bit. But then in verse 22, he says why it is that they should flee. He says, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. You should flee. Why? For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. It's a fulfillment of Scripture. It's an act of God's vengeance. Again in verse 23, he mentions there will be great distress on the earth and wrath against this people. Ultimately, this is God's wrath. He's not just saying the Romans will be really angry. He's saying this is going to be a demonstration of God's wrath against Jerusalem. God's displeasure on display. So we have vengeance, we have wrath, and we have this taking place in fulfillment of what has been written. This is why it's coming. God judges people because he's filled with wrath and is keeping his word. This is why judgment falls. It's an expression of God's anger, his wrath. Now, people, some people, they despise this thought of God. They despise this talk of God's wrath. They will argue it, it conjures up pagan notions of angry deities who are capricious and they're just mad and, they, and we don't know, you know, how to please them and they just fly off the handle at any moment and, and this can't be how God is and, and so this seems to them a pagan notion but of course the, the Bible does not depict the wrath of God in this way at all uh, the Almighty is not given to sudden changes or random outbursts at any given moment of which we're completely unaware or surprised by it's not how the Bible depicts God's wrath it's wholly different than any literature about Greek gods the reality is the Bible tells us that God is in fact slow to anger. And he's abounding in steadfast love. When his wrath is poured out, there's nothing quick-tempered about it. There's nothing unjust about it. His judgment, again, it's always tied to his righteousness. As a point of fact, while we read the Old Testament, we see God's judgment on display quite, it seems to be, often. The fact is the Old Testament is also a testament to the patience of God and to the fact that he's slow to anger. He makes very clear his expectations and the consequences of violating those expectations all throughout the scriptures. Right, Starting with Adam, very clear what will happen if he eats of the tree. And when he does eat of the tree, God shows mercy to Adam. He actually gives him a covering and sends him out of the garden but does not wipe him out right away. He's actually slow to anger with Adam. When the people of Israel are brought into covenant with God at Sinai, the covenant expectations that are upon them are very clearly laid out. You think of the, uh, the blessings and the curses that are in Deuteronomy 28. These are the blessings if you keep the covenant expectations, and these are the curses if you violate them. Very clear terms, 
And then we see this exact thing play out throughout Israel's history. When they are trusting in the Lord, following after Him, we see the blessings come. We see Him be patient with them even as they fail. And when they fail, we see Him bring about the curses that He said He would bring about, keeping His word. But even then, when the people violated God's covenant, over and over again, he was still very patient. He repeatedly sent them prophets. And what do the prophets do? They warn. They tell them the ways that they've gone wrong. They say, repent, turn back, trust in the Lord. He sends them to warn. And yet these prophets were regularly persecuted, regularly marginalized, not believed, even killed. Jesus has made that clear even in Luke. And so eventually, after hundreds of years, God does send them into exile. He sends them into Assyria and then finally into Babylon. But even then, God graciously brings them back after a time. Think of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They're brought back into the land. And once again, we get to even, I think of Malachi, which we looked at a couple years ago. They once again abandon God, once again stray. And now, God has sent John the Baptist as a forerunner to Christ, proclaiming repentance, the kingdom of God is at hand. But what did they do to John? He's killed. He's beheaded. And now, the Messiah himself is, is here, the Son of God is here in human flesh, the perfect man and what do they do with him? We've been reading. They're plotting to kill him. They're seeing how they can do away with him. In fact, as Jesus gives this address in chapter 21, he's just a few days away from the cross. God is slow to anger, but he does have wrath. You simply cannot crucify the Son of God and expect that judgment would not fall. You remember back to Malachi when they were back in the land after returning from Babylonian exile. The Lord declared through Malachi that he would send a messenger to prepare the way. Ultimately, that's John the Baptist. And then the Lord himself would show up to the temple, which Jesus did. And then he prophesied, even in Malachi, of a refining that would take place. But also, he then says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. In destroying Jerusalem, the Lord was bringing to pass His Word. He had spoken beforehand through the prophets the things that had been written in Scripture concerning His holy wrath against sin. He was just keeping His Word. And this is what was happening as Jerusalem was being destroyed. And again, His wrath is tied to His righteousness. Because He's perfectly righteous as the judge, He must execute perfect justice. Again, you cannot love righteousness and be neutral towards wickedness or bat an eye at it. And so we're told that God is wrathful towards sin, towards wickedness and evil. And He is the one who repays man's evil. He is the one who exacts vengeance and recompense. And this is a picture of that here. His destroying of Jerusalem, the city that He chose where His temple would be, the heartbeat of his covenant people under the old covenant of Israel, he's prepared to even destroy that city and that temple. 
These are not easy or maybe not popular attributes of God. They're just not. It's difficult to think through these things. But these realities that are plain in Scripture, they should cause us to stop. They should cause us to consider as we approach God, whether it's worship or prayer or whatever it is. It should make us reflect on our own condition. And it should make us those who throw ourselves wholly and completely on God's mercy and on His grace. These, these attributes of God are an antidote to the overly sentimentalized understanding of God in our day. You know that version of God that has a skewed version of His love. Uh, he is love. The Bible is clear about that. But it is a holy love. It is a righteous love. It is a love that is in perfect keeping with His justice and righteousness. It is not just an, a gushy feeling towards people. It is a service to nobody if we gloss over these majestic, if terrifying, attributes of God. It is scary, of course, because when we hold up our own selves to God's perfect righteousness and His perfect standard by which He will judge, we know that we fall woefully short if we are being honest. And so we are by nature, as Scripture says, children of wrath under God's judgment because of our sinful nature that we've inherited from Adam and because then we've acted out of this sinful nature in our sinful actions and thoughts and attitudes all throughout our days. And it is unrighteousness of this sort which brings about the wrath of God and brings down His judgment. And this is not just a problem for Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. It is a problem for all of mankind. And being true to His word, God will bring about, He will execute perfect justice. So this gets heavier yet before it gets any lighter. Uh, the third way Jesus prepares us is that He prepares His church to escape judgment by revealing the severity of God's judgment. The judgment is, is coming. He makes that very plain to us. He's told us the reason why judgment comes. This is wrath. And now He's going to reveal the severity of it. Again, we're not left to doubt here. Uh, the severity of God's wrath is not shrouded in mystery. Uh, he tells us. It's, pretty quite, it's really quite plain throughout Scripture. Now some people you've heard raise their chest and they say, well if God does exist and I stand before Him, I'll tell Him then you know, what I really think of Him. You know, you've probably heard some kind of statement to that effect. Clearly that's folly. Jesus gives us the sense here of the awful severity of judgment. Look at verse 23 again. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. Now pregnancy and child rearing throughout the scriptures are a blessing. They're a wonderful thing. But Jesus is saying when this siege begins, 
that this would only prove to make things all the more painful and all the more difficult. Suddenly having a nursing child or being pregnant was all the more challenging and burdensome when famine hits as the result of a siege. He says great distress would be upon the earth. Uh, The word earth there can just mean land. It can be translated as land. I think that's what he's saying. He's just saying great distress will be upon this region, upon Jerusalem. He says there will be wrath against this people. So severe is the judgment that it would reach even the most vulnerable in society. Pregnant women and those nursing new babies. And verse 24 adds, they will fall. Now it's speaking about this people in general. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The people, he says, would die by the sword. Others would be led captive while Jerusalem would be trampled. And in fact, the historical record shows that this siege, this destruction of Jerusalem, was in fact horrific. It was brutal. Uh, I mentioned, I think it was last week, I talked about Josephus, who's a a, a Jewish historian. He was... uh, a commander initially in the Jewish revolt, uh, but he was captured and he became an interpreter for the Romans. And he wrote this history uh, throughout this time. And so we can learn some things about, uh, the, about this siege and what went on from him. And of course, there's always questions about the accuracy of these things, but generally reliable. There are numerous stories that he writes about, of of famine spreading as the siege occurred. So a siege, of course, is when you surround the city and you cut it off from the outside. So what happens? You cannot get food and supplies into the city, so famine is going to come, disease spreads, and, and the hope is that you basically starve them into surrender so that you can take over the city without actually having to destroy it and, and lose some of your own people and whatnot. But the people of Jerusalem refused to surrender, even though it was brutal inside the walls. And eventually the Romans did breach the walls. And when they did, it was just indiscriminate slaughter. Soldiers, civilians alike. Josephus tells a story of, uh, a horrific story of a, a mother who's nursing a child. And I won't, I won't even repeat it. Uh, but, it was, but it's just, the point is, it's brutal. And it was a significant event even in its, in its day. There was a large arch built in Jerusalem in honor of Titus's, Titus's victory over Jerusalem, a large arch, sorry, put in Rome, in honor of, uh, of Titus's victory, and you can still see the arch today. The Romans eventually burned the gates, they burned the walls down, the temple itself was destroyed, and many, many, many people died. Josephus says it was over a million, that might be way too high, um, but even if he's ten times too high, it's a lot of people destroyed. A significant portion of the population killed from young to old, soldier, civilian. And many more were taken captive. He says about 97,000. We're not sure exact numbers, but a lot of people. Now when we think about the severity of God's judgments as, the, as we read of them in Scripture, these are often put forth by people as evidence that God is just too harsh, that he's simply too brutal, that nobody deserves this, is the thinking. This is too much. And to some 
you know, according to human thinking, this seems to make sense at times, persuasive. But if the word of God is to believe, to be believed, even above our own rationalizing, then what this reveals to us not that is not that God is too harsh or brutal in his tactics and his judgments, but rather it reveals to us the true depravity of humankind. If God is just and righteous in all that he does, and this is seen as just retribution for their sins, then this screams at us how awful and serious human sinfulness is. And it is a reminder to us that we have lowered God and we've brought ourselves up. And so we have trouble squaring this because we think too highly of ourselves and too low of God. But if the scriptures are true and we take them together, that God is righteous in all things, that his judgments are done in righteousness, that God, as the judge of all, shall do what is right, then this is just. And this tells us that our sin is so much more serious than we know. And this judgment that came upon Jerusalem, it's a type of the final judgment. And if you think of typology, there's always a progression. There's an increase or an escalation from type to the antitype or the fulfillment. So let me just explain that for a second. You think of David. David is a type of Christ. Um, but David is a type. Jesus is greater than David. He's greater. He's the, the greater David. Okay, so there's an escalation there. Um, the promised land is a type of the new heavens and new earth. But the new heavens and new earth is far greater than the physical land of Canaan. Uh, the, the Passover lamb is a type of Christ's sacrificial work, but Christ's sacrificial work is clearly greater than the Passover lamb that allowed the people to uh, spare their firstborn children in the land of Egypt. So there's always escalation. Likewise, the destruction of Jerusalem was horrific, but the final judgment of sinners is greater still, yet more severe. The Bible describes this place of punishment as the lake of fire, where the worm does not die, where the fire is not quenched. It's also described as the place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. To be there is to be, to be under this judgment is to be cut off from any goodness of God. It is to be under the wrath of the Lamb. It is an eternal conscious punishment for sin. Again, this might seem harsh, but the reality is it is a depiction of the true gulf that separates God in His holiness and man in our sinfulness. That even the best of what sinful man could offer is still worthy of damnation by God. That our refusal to acknowledge what is plain about God, even in creation, leaves us under this severe condemnation. The all-seeing God knows all that is done under the sun, and as the righteous judge, he will hold all to account 
according to his standard of righteous perfection. His judgments are indeed severe, and we need to realize this. So judgment is coming. It is because of God's wrath against sinful human beings, against our sin. And the judgment is severe. Are we ready for good news yet? This is really the part up till now that Luther really struggled with. He could see the holiness of God in Scripture. He could see the righteousness of God. He could see the demands upon sinful humanity. He could see that he could not meet those demands as hard as he tried. He could see there was no guarantees in the sacraments of the Catholic Church at the time that this was actually going to work and make me stand righteous before God. And he was in misery because he could see all of these things and he had no solution. He did not know what the answer was. And of course, the good news is that God is not just righteous. He is not just just and the judge of all. But God is also slow to anger. He is also abounding in steadfast love. He is also a God of mercy. And we do see that in this text. As he speaks of what was coming upon Jerusalem in verse 21, Jesus gives some instruction that as they see the armies approaching, verse 21, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. So to summarize what Jesus is saying in verse 21, when you see the armies approaching, get out of Jerusalem and stay out of Jerusalem. And if you are outside of Jerusalem, do not go into Jerusalem. That's what he's saying to them. Here is the way of escape. If they would heed his words, they need not fall under this horrific judgment that is coming. There's mercy in this. Again, Josephus, he tells us of a false prophet during the siege who was rallying the people to the temple to say, we're about to see a miraculous sign of God delivering his people. And he's telling people to stay. And even Josephus recognizes clearly in hindsight that was a false prophecy. It's the opposite of what Jesus says. It was much like the false prophets of old preaching peace, peace when there was no peace. Stay, stay, everything's fine. Jesus says, get out and stay out. And he tells us this, he tells the people this in mercy. In the 4th century, uh, Eusebius of Caesarea, he's a bishop, he wrote a church history, and he records that there were many Christians who heeded these words of Jesus and actually did flee. When the army started to approach, they fled to a place on the other side of the Jordan, uh, a place called Pella. And from there, they were able to escape the sufferings and the slaughter that occurred at Jerusalem. And just as Jesus provided the way of escape from that judgment, so too he provides the way of escaping God's eternal judgment. His earthly ministry to this point in Luke has actually been taken up with this theme. He's mentioned this a lot. Back in chapter 13, verse 3 and verse 6, he told the crowds there, Unless you repent, you too will all likewise perish. 
Just as the Galileans that were slaughtered by Pilate died, just as those on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and it crushed them, if you don't repent, similar but even greater judgment is coming to you. He's also been making it clear that it is faith in Him that will spare one the coming judgment. He said, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. He has made clear that he is the servant of the book of Isaiah, who has come to set the captives free from their sin, to bring about reconciliation with God. We've seen that his face was set towards Jerusalem, where it's necessary to fulfill the scriptures, necessary, that he would suffer, he'd be betrayed, he would suffer, he would die, he would be buried, and he would rise again from the dead. That he might bear the wrath of God on behalf of all who would trust in him. Jesus Christ the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins. It is him alone who satisfies and turns back the wrath of God. And he does this did this by substituting himself, his own righteous life, in our, on our behalf, and by offering himself as the once for all sacrifice for sins. And what a horrible wrath he did endure, drinking down the just and righteous cup of the wrath of God. Jesus, the God man, paying the infinite penalty the severe penalty that sinners deserve while he hung on the cross. And in his resurrection, it is clear his sacrifice is acceptable before God. He rose, he's been exalted to the Father's right hand, and from there he will come, as the old creed says, to judge the living and the dead. And so it is him that we must trust in order that we might escape and flee from the wrath of God, from the judgment that is to come, Jesus is the way of escape. And it is because of him God can justly forgive all who repent and trust in Christ because, not because he just looks the other way, but because Christ has satisfied God's demands for justice. His righteous demands for justice. Sins have been committed. There must be payment for that. And in steps Jesus to make that payment for all who believe in Him. That wrath falls upon the substitute, upon Jesus Christ, the righteous, the spotless Lamb of God. And so, we are called to flee the city of destruction, and to run to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do this by repenting of our sin and by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Repenting of our sin, acknowledging how we fall short of God's righteousness and His glory, how we've committed sin in our actions, in our thoughts, that we are sinful by nature, by acknowledging the evil that this is, by confessing that to God, and then placing our sole hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting that He has, in fact, 
died to save sinners like us. And the good news, that, and that is the good news. And as Paul declares, you know, that he was the chief of sinners, and that the fact that Paul could be saved, a man who persecuted the church of Jesus Christ, is evidence that anybody, that, that there's no sin so severe that God cannot overcome that and forgive if we would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the wrath of God and the judgment of God, though difficult, though heavy, though terrifying in one sense, it's essential. It has to be understood. The gospel makes no sense without that. It's good news because there is bad news. We must see the heinousness of our sin we must see the righteousness of God so that we might flee to the solution to our problem, namely to Jesus Christ, and that we might see the beauty of what it is that Christ has done for all who believe in him. And we must then cling to Christ, cling to him alone, put no hope in our own works, no hope in our own righteousness, but forsake that all, as Paul says in Philippians 3, as garbage, that we might be found to have a righteousness that comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even our greatest works are stained and mixed with sin. Spurgeon makes a comment that even our, even our best deeds still requires God's mercy. Even when we are doing good things, we still do those things imperfectly and require God's mercy. As we gather and worship, we need His mercy. As I try to preach, I need His mercy. As we do what He calls us to do, we're still in need of His mercy. And mercy is ours through Christ Jesus. So Jesus has prepared us for the judgment that is coming. And just as He pointed to the way of escape when Jerusalem would be surrounded, He has made a way to escape the wrath of God that is coming when the Lord Jesus returns. How we need the spotless Lamb of God to be slain for our violations of God's law. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the difficult parts as challenging as they are. Father, I pray that we would be those who submit ourselves to your word, who lean not on our own understanding. And Father, I pray that this would be our joy to look at these truths to see our wretchedness that we might all the more rejoice in the glory of your salvation that comes through Christ. That we would worship you all the more joyously and fervently understanding just a little more of the massive gulf that you've spanned to reconcile us to yourself. Father, I pray that every person here would rejoice in Christ, would, would flee the wrath that is to come by repenting of their sin and trusting Jesus. 
Father, I pray that we would all remain diligent, that we would not be embarrassed of these truths, but that we would hold them forth to a world that is headed for this day, and, and, and not just speak of wrath, but ultimately point people to the glorious salvation that is in Christ. Father, we praise you and marvel at the way you have worked it so that you can both be just and the justifier of wicked people who have faith in Christ. That your righteous standard was upheld as you poured out judgment on your Son who substituted in for us and that because of this we can be forgiven. That you are not a God who winks at evil. God, we are glad for this. And as we await or as we look out onto a world where we see injustices take place, may we be reminded and comforted in the fact that you will do what is right. And may we also be reminded that we too deserve your wrath, and that were it not for your grace, we would still be under your wrath. So Father, give us joy in the truth of the gospel. Give us courage to share it with others. And give us strength to stand here and make our boast solely in Christ alone. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.